0: Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Now, please welcome, all the way from the front living room, your hosts Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 32 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast.
1: Hi everybody.
0: We have today via telephone with us a very special guest who before retiring was a journalist, lecturer a comprehensive school headmaster, a radio and TV presenter with shows that included 40 and TV, a favourite of mine, Castles of Horror and Forbidden History. He was also, like myself, a martial arts instructor and a motorcyclist. He's written with his lovely wife Patricia over 200 books and will be telling us later where we can purchase their newest offering. Please welcome to the show one of the best raconteurs to walk the earth, the renowned Reverend Lionel Fanthorpe.
2: It's an honour and a privilege to be on your show.
0: Thank you very much. Honestly, the pleasure is all ours. Now, I remember watching you on Fortean TV. That must have been a hell of a job.
2: It was very different, uh, very interesting and exciting. Because, you know, they took the name from the famous Charles Ford. Charles Ford, yeah. And it became Fortean, just like Dickensian or Shakespearean. Yeah. You take a really great and famous character and just stick E-A-N on the end of his name. And... (laughs) Fort um, was operative in the 20s and 30s, and he explored anything that was inexplicable. And I've been one of his admirers since long before the show. And then when I uh, had the thrill of being invited to present Forty TV, well, that was uh, just everything I wanted. And then when they told me I could use my Harley Davidson to ride to the different sites where we were filming. Um, (laughs) You know, can a man know any more happiness this side of heaven? (laughs)
0: Wow. And, of course, you travelled the world
2: doing that. Oh, we did. Yep, we did. Um, From places as far as Oak Island, you know, on the uh, coast of Nova Scotia, Canada, um, down to, well, everywhere you can think of, if there was a mystery there, we went. It seemed to me I'd always been interested in unsolved mysteries. But it seemed to me that the closer you could get to it, if you could actually stand in the haunted bedroom of the haunted house, or if you could stand by the side of the money pit on Oak Island, or if you could go down to Rennes-le-Chateau in the south of France and see the actual places where Berenger-Saunier worked as a priest and where somehow or other he became incredibly rich, to actually stand on the place... It was almost uh, as if you were communicating with the people from the long pass who had been involved in those mysteries.
0: And and I suppose it made it all the more real for you as well, because these days, I don't know if you've noticed, but since the advent of the internet, there seems to be a hell of a lot more sort of armchair investigators, if you like.
2: Yeah, well, I think that being on the spot and doing it firsthand is so much better, both for the presenter and for his audience, yeah. And uh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. Of course, I had my marvelous little Patricia with me, and she was the basically the the reason why the show went so well, because she's my agent, technically my agent and manager as well, and she did all the negotiating for me. But she, she, knowing my limitations in terms of memory, she would pull me to one side while they were setting up the cameras and the mics and all the other professional gear and go over with me the next couple of paragraphs that I had to use in the presentation. And she drilled me until I was word perfect <laughs> on the paragraphs. And uh, I said, she is more responsible than I am for any success that we had with the show.
0: So, so they say, don't they? Behind every great man,
2: there's an even greater woman, and I'd certainly say that we just, <laughs> we we just celebrated uh, uh, last year uh, was our diamond wedding, and you know uh, our wonderful daughters made sure that we got the card from Buckingham Palace. Wow! And yeah, we married in 1957. Wow! And uh, so it was our 60th, our diamond wedding last year, September the seventh.
0: Oh, congratulations!
2: Thank you very much. Thank you, but. Uh, I wouldn't have had any of the success that I've had or any of the shows I've had or the books I've written without that wonderful little lady with me. She's just everything.
0: Well, I've got to say that I owe it all to Bella as well. And I've got to say that because she's right next to me. Yes,
2: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you... And I'm sure it's absolutely right because, uh, <laughs> as you just said, um, behind every successful man is a a wonderful woman who's helping him.
0: And I think that if you can share something that you're both passionate about as well, then that just makes oh, yes. it all the more sweet, doesn't it?
2: Well, we're both fascinated by unsolved mysteries, and um, no matter where the place is, and never any demur about, oh, well, let's get on the next train. I can remember when we first investigated the Renle Chateau mystery. That was the one that uh, Bage and Lincoln and Lee did a program on mm-hmm. about 30 years ago, and uh, I was teaching then, I came in from school, and it was at the end of July, we got about one more day to go before the school broke up, and Patricia, I've just seen this amazing show about Renly Chateau in, you know, south of France, and uh, within sort of five minutes, we'd arranged to take the children over to stay with my mother, while we hitchhiked all the way down to Le Chateau. Really? Yeah, and... Uh, But that was the sort of thing that, uh, you know, where you really depend on her. And uh, so we we took our two delighted little daughters over to stay with grandma, who loved them as much as they loved her. And we knew they'd be having a fantastic time. And we were we were off with our thumbs up down the French motorway. <laughs> All the way down to Carcassonne, and then from Carcassonne to Rennes le Chateau. The
1: only place I've ever heard of that Carcassonne was from the game that we used to play. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Carca- <laughs> do, have you ever played that, line,
0: or Carcassonne?
2: No, no, I haven't yeah. come across that. It is it? I can't
0: remember. It's about um, taking charge of, of different areas. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, oh, it's almost like Risk. Do you remember Risk? It's, it's like oh, yeah. It's like that kind yes, of I thing. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But
2: of course, you know the the, the Rennes le Chateau story was where this impoverished priest suddenly becomes the richest man in the south of France. And nobody till this day knows what he found, where he got his money, whether he was actually discovered something and was blackmailing the Vatican or what the dickens he was up to. Right. But what do you was, uh, well, he, is in it, he was in himself an enormous mystery. And what the wealth was in René Chateau, I don't know what I think, it could possibly have been something that later made its way to Oak Island.
0: Well, I was going to uh, ask you about that, because that's something to do with treasure, isn't it?
2: Oh, it is. The The Oak Island mystery, uh, concerned, it's in Mahone Bay on the coast of Nova Scotia, and uh, three young lads were exploring on the island, which was then uninhabited, and they got to... Um, they they got to a clearing in the woods where they found there that there was what looked like a recently excavated hole. And, of course, in those days, everybody thought, well, it was 1795 when the boys were exploring. They were Dan McGinnis, John Smith, and Anthony Vaughan. And in those days, if you imagine, if we were teenagers in 1795, actually, I sometimes think I must have been. They, <laughs> There was uh, uh, everybody looking for pirate treasure. And when the boys saw this big hole in the island, they started to dig. oh, Somebody's left something enormous down there. And uh, they got down as far as they could, which wasn't far. And then they went back and came back with an adult expedition. They got their parents and their uncles and so on, uh, close friends and neighbors. And the adult expeditions have been working on Oak Island ever since. And one of them was uh, that the the pit flooded to a depth of about 60 feet and the water rose and fell gently with the tide. And the men who called themselves the Onslow Company uh, said that trying to get the water out of that pit with bailing and pumping was like trying to eat soup with a fork. (laughs) And one expedition after another took over Apart from small things... Of course, this has recently all been televised. Apart from small things being found and the mysterious plate that said 40 feet below 2 million pounds are buried, nobody's ever fished that out. Hmm. And one of the theories is that it was Templar wealth that had been taken over in 1307, some of it having been hidden in Rennes-le-Château where the Templars had a stronghold. It was very close at um, Chateau Blanchefort, only a couple of miles away. And it was thought that once Philip IV, you know, Philip Bel, who destroyed the Templars in 1307, that they had taken what treasure they had hidden there. And what Philip didn't get was the Templar fleet, which was at La Rochelle. And if you could imagine them battling their way across the Atlantic, to get as far as possible from Philip. Uh, The thought being, if you're looking at a modern comparison, if you want to hide something from somebody who's after you, then try and get on a lunar rocket. And crossing (laughs) the Atlantic in 1307 would have been the equivalent of a lunar rocket today. And I think that when they do eventually solve the mystery of the money pit on Oak Island, that it will be some very, very potent, ancient treasure which was put there seven or 800 years ago by the Templars.
0: Am I right in saying that you had your own adventure when you were on the boat over to Oak Island? Is that
2: correct? Uh, yeah, we, we have had one or two adventures there. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the most exciting thing about uh, that uh, uh, I had was the, the money pit. We met Dan Blankenship who is now still fighting on well into his 90s and because when we were there, he was still in his 60s. And uh, Dan, the sort of guy that he was, he had got the Congressional Medal of Honor for his war service. He was a real character. Feared nothing. And uh, he showed us this huge hole he dug, which was called uh, Shaft 101. And uh, down at the bottom there, Dan nearly lost his life. He'd gone down, it was flooded, and uh, his uh, ascent mechanism failed, and he he managed to make contact with his son who was helping him on the island, and he said, boy, unless you want to be an orphan, get me out of this. <laughs> I'd love to go over again now and help the guys who are doing it. Yeah, it's, so so
0: uh, it's still going on today?
2: Uh, yeah, it's, yeah there's, some, there's a television series about it, and they, there are two brothers who have got wonderful financial resources, and they've taken all kinds of digging equipment over there, and I think if anybody is going to solve the riddle of Oak Island, it'll be these two guys. Mm. It's a very impressive programme. Recommend it. Yeah, I'll have
0: to look that one up. Am I right in saying something happened on the boat when you were travelling over to the island?
2: Oh, yes. The first visit that we'd made, uh, there, there wasn't anybody particularly, when they'd all pulled their boats up for the winter mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, sort of pulled them up way over high tide level. And the only guy that we could persuade to take us over... Was uh, a local boat builder and repairer, who said, "Well, I've got this one almost ready, but uh, I think it'll get us over there." <laughs> we got we got about halfway across, and the boat decided it wasn't going over there, and <laughs> it was doing its best to sink. Actually, as I don't recall the detail, the flaming rudder fell off. It hadn't <laughs> resecured oh <my> the <laughs> rudder properly, and there we were in this. Part of Mahone Bay, which was deep and stormy and incredibly cold, over in Nova Scotia, and uh, we, we eventually got back. There were a couple of guys were fishing, which was what saved our lives, and we drifted in close to them. And one of us, one of them, held his rod out and said, "Hey, man, grab this!" So I grabbed it. My only concern was to get my little Patricia safely out of that boat, and I held on to the side of the. Um, the little jetty thing where these two fishermen were and uh, I locked onto that with all the strength I'd got and Pat managed to scramble to more or less had to walk over me in order to get to the shore once she was safe on that platform. I didn't care I'm a powerful swimmer. I wouldn't have <laughs> care if the boat had gone down once I'd got her safely on the land. Oh, but it didn't. Me. And we got to the and uh, of course on subsequent trips there was a causeway built so that you didn't have to use the boat at all, you could just walk along the beach onto the causeway and walk <laughs> across, which was a lot safer.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. By the sound of it, I bet that experience didn't do that boat builder much good, did it?
2: Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> he was he was hoping to make a few quick bucks from taking us over. Yeah, but and you he, but you were both okay. We were absolutely fine. Yeah, we we both made it. And, some of these explorations of the mysterious do rather make you wonder about the there's the, I'm trying to remember where it was now. It was one of the Caribbean islands where there was a, a a very mysterious tomb where the coffins had moved around. And I think it was on Barbados itself. And I remember because I actually, as I'm sitting here in my study, only three feet away from me on a shelf with my books on is a piece of stone from the floor of that Barbados vault. And the uh, it had been built by a wealthy family of planters back in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries. And as one after the other died, they were taken down into this big stone vault and the coffins were laid out in a sort of neat and respectful pattern. And when they took the next family member down there, they found that all the coffins that had been previously interred had moved. And eventually, these movements seemed to become worse. And eventually, two of the coffins were standing on their ends propped against the wall.
0: Well, I was just about to say to you, was was it on a slope? But that kind of... <laughs> that blows no, that out of the water, that theory. It was just a, it was a sort
2: of... Just a natural tomb with an absolutely flat floor. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we uh, we made our way into that, and I thought, well, uh, whatever force or power may be, what if it's some strange natural force, like, you know, like magnetism, mm. except that whatever it is, it's able to act. Um on the, the, the coffins were, because it was out in the tropics, were lead-coated, and they weighed about a tonne each. Wow. And after this had happened, on six or seven occasions, the governor of Barbados took a hand, a guy called Lord Combermere, and uh, he ordered the priest to take them all out of that tomb and bury them separately in the churchyard. And so those members of the family had been buried there in the, the big iron um, leg lead-coated coffins were all buried separately where they are still. And the uh, the tomb remains absolutely empty. And when we went, uh, we'd got, uh, because we were making a program about it, the Barbados Tourist Board uh, were very pleased to have us there, knowing that we were doing this for a BBC show or a broadcast show. And uh, they had provided us free of charge, with a Barbadian taxi driver, who was a big, strong guy. And when we got to the tomb, he was peering in at us from the top. And he said, uh, is there anything exciting down there? And I said, yeah, come on down. And this is one of the nicest compliments I've ever received. He said, "And it's a big, strong fellow it was like a heavyweight boxer. And he said, if you're down there, I'll come. But I ain't going down there by myself. <laughs> so I felt very complimented that I could protect him and he, he came down into the tomb with us and told us one of his other phrases which got to us was I don't want to be down here, not after what my grandmother told me. So what his grandmother had told him when he was a kid, heaven knows. But but that but that Barbados tomb has a strange reputation.
1: D did, did they once they moved them? did they ever move again? Once they buried no, they them were separate.
2: they were they were all buried in normal six foot graves, and uh, if there was any subterranean movement, no one ever knew anything about it. They they never they didn't pop up again and stroll around. Yeah, they were they were just the the reason that Lord Combermere, I said who was then the governor of Barbados, said that he wanted them down there was that I think they would a be out of sight and eventually out of mind. Yeah. Because it was causing such a, uh, a stir and a scandal all over the island.
0: Well, I was going to ask you what sort of harm they were doing. If they were in that tomb and they were moving, why not let them be? But I suppose that area of the world as well, they're very superstitious, aren't they?
2: Yes, it, it was causing a, a, a terrible amount of fright because the belief in demons, belief in paranormal entities. And the uh, one would think, you know, all the old legends about if something uh, outrageous happens after someone is dead, they Mm. will say, you know, granddad would be rotating in his grave. Mm. And I think (laughs) the fact that these coffins were moving was sort of indicating that there was something gone on in the uh, contemporary world, which was greatly upsetting. The family name was Chase, C-H-A-S-E, and it was the Chase family vault. And as I said, and as I'm telling you the story now, just three feet away from me on my bookshelf is that uh, piece of stone that we brought from the vault. And one of the things that the local authorities said to us was when they let us go in under no circumstances remove anything from the vault because it was still believed even by some of the uh, authorities uh, that there was some weird, evil power that uh, operated on, and if you took anything from it, then what you had taken might be said to be impregnated with the strange dark force. But that was thir- that was 30 years ago, and I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, they still believe that, don't they, with Ayers Rock, with Uluru? Um, mm. they, they believe that
2: there, there have been yes, people do, that have but...
0: taken stuff away and, and then had a grave misfortune.
2: Yeah, it, it makes you think a little bit about the modern scientific knowledge of of radioactivity, where if you're exposed to something which has itself been exposed to um, very high radiation, then, of course, you're carrying the danger with you. That uh, To pick up a piece of... I certainly wouldn't have wanted to pick up a piece of rock from the floor of a building where somebody dropped a nuclear bomb. No. No. (laughs) But, yes, the the chase vault in, in Barbados is still... Regarded with awe even by the modern you know Barbadians weird place, but uh, that's just one of the there seem to be dangers like the problem we had with the boat on Oak Island. <laughs> there do seem to be strange things attached to some of these places.
1: who was that family what do you know anything about their background, the chase family?
2: no, I don't know what happened and I think that the very last of them. Had died in the early 19th century, and was one of those who were interred uh, in the vault. But there were they were none of them left. It was almost as if the earlier burials had been sort of waiting for the last member of the family to join them. It's a very odd business that they were.
0: So they were more or less silent, if you like, or at least you know static until such time as that last family member w- was interred
2: seemed that every time, there were about five or six of them in there, and it rather seemed, from what we were able to gather from the people who were telling us the story and from our own investigations on the island, that the discovery of the disturbance, the movement of the coffins, took place every time there was an interment, that you, you couldn't just sort of look in, but the doors were, were sealed. Right. And then when another member of the family died, the doors were opened, and to everybody's horror and consternation, the coffins that had been put in there previously had moved all over the shop.
0: Right, OK.
2: So that we don't know at what time it was, If there were, shall we say, two or three years between the interments... Yeah. ..then we, we don't know uh, at what point or period that had actually happened.
0: Yeah. OK, I'm going to move you from one tomb to a story about a time slip incident at Tomblands. Is that right, in Norwich? Yes, in
2: Norwich, yes. Oh, that was an amazing thing, and it's so local, because Patricia and I are both Norfolk kids, and uh, Norwich was our capital city of Norfolk, and Mm -hmm. that was where we always used to go for our shopping, or the theatre, or if there was a good film on. And one of the, the, the very strange things, if you go down to Norwich Cathedral in what is called Tombland, there's a, an old-fashioned Victorian gentleman's toilet. And it consisted, you had to go down this big flight of steps. The um, the toilets must have been, I think, probably 20 feet below surface level, or at least 15. And it was one that uh, I had on occasion used when you've been shopping. You think, well, I'll just pop down there. It is a convenient convenience. And the, the the very strange mystery was there was a a small car parking space. You could put perhaps four or five cars around this uh, toilet. It were marked off as parking spaces.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And a retired couple, a gentleman and his wife, had been shopping. And uh, she said she was fine until she got home. But he said, well, I'm going to have to just pop down into the uh, Tombland toilet. So he parks the car within sight of the top of the steps which you use to descend and uh, five minutes pass, 10 minutes, 15, and he hasn't returned. Now, she is getting very anxious in case he's either fallen on the steps, had a heart attack, had a stroke. Is he lying there unconscious on the floor of the loo? And a well-meaning and, kind-hearted traffic warden was going past, just checking.
0: You don't find many of those, do you?
2: Well, I've I've heard <laughs> that they're rare. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, this guy was very friendly and helpful and he could see the lady was anxious and she said, could you please help me go down the, the toilet and see whether my husband has been taken ill? he has been down there for a long time. So, traffic warden said, of course I will madam, and down he goes. He came back no more than three minutes later and said, there is no one in the toilets, madam. I have opened all the individual, there were three or four individual toilets, and then there was the urinal on the wall, up against the wall. And He said, I've opened each of the cubicles. There is no one in there. And she said, well, I can't understand it. She said, I've been sitting here in the car right by the top of the steps waiting for him to come back. And uh, anyway, the traffic warden went on his way to do his other duties. And another five minutes passed, and he, the the husband, reappears looking very distressed and worried. He opens the door, sits down beside her and says, I've just got to get my mind together, and I'll tell you in a minute. And uh, he says, I'm all right, don't worry, love, don't worry. And when he's recovered after a few minutes, she said, please, what happened? And he said, I don't know. I went down, I used the toilet, I washed my hands, I came back up the steps. The car was not here. You were not here. On the next road that intersects with Tombland, there were cars going almost in total silence, and they were of a design I have never seen. And he said, I remembered reading in science fiction stories like H.G. Wells, that if unbelievable as it seems, a time slip happens, go back to the place where you were when it happened. And he said, and I went back down into the toilet. And he said, and I pulled the seat cover down and sat down trying to get myself back under control. I was in a state of shock. And then he said, well, I'd recovered. I came up the steps. Everything was normal. You were here. The car was here, and there was no sight nor sound of the strange vehicles that I saw when I came up first time. And they drove home, sort of lived happily ever after. There was no 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 long-term ill effect. Now, on this whole question of time slips, I think that even the most advanced of our physicists really know what time is uh einstein's idea was pretty good but we are only just beginning we're on the fringe of understanding what time really is and whether a slip occurs naturally or whether somebody is one day going to build a machine as in the hg wells story on that uh, so that that's the story of those two. Now, i found a very, very interesting piece that, in a sense, augments what we've just been talking about and looking at. Okay. There's a girl by the name of Alexandria Alexis, who turned up in 1898, and she didn't fit in with that Victorian society. and within a matter of weeks on New Year's Eve of 18... Well, a little bit more than a matter of months. On New Year's Eve 1899, she vanished. And what she had said to people that she spoke to during the very brief time she was there, and this was in New York, apparently, from the notes I was able to find, that she said, had lived in the year 2025 really? And, yeah but she'd lived in 2025 and time travel time machines had just been invented and somehow or other Alexandria Alexis just turned up as if from nowhere and the general reaction was some that thought she was simply telling the truth and that it was a miracle of some sort, and a photographer called Napoleon Cerrone took a picture of her. Now, this is all up on the net, and uh, he was at number 680 Broadway, and uh, said her name, the, the headline of the piece is The Girl from the Future, Time Traveller Revealed. Now, factual that really happened. And if that photograph shows it, it's very well uh, you and our, our listeners looking that up because the photograph of her is very striking, but she doesn't look Victorian. She looks more like somebody from our epoch. And it makes you think about the two old people and the gentleman who somehow whisked through time, however brief a period in the Tombland toilet in Norwich, and this young lady who turned up in eighteen ninety eight claiming that she'd come from twenty twenty five. Well
0: presumably she would be alive now then.
2: Oh she would, yes. I mean she from the photograph it looks as if she's in her early twenties. So she would have been born round about well two thousand and
0: five, two thousand and six. Wow. So maybe we should get our listeners to share that image as much as they can and see if someone can track her down.
2: That would be absolutely marvellous, Shelley. Yes, indeed it would. But uh, there it is. It's called uh, the, the the headline that I got when I was looking for some in- interesting information to go with our session today. The, head, the headline is 1898, the girl from the future, time traveller revealed. And it comes under a heading of Unexplained Mysteries. And another way of looking her up would be Alexandria Alexis. Right. So it would be, be marvellous to get our listeners to uh, look into that if they could. And what if somebody has actually, and uh, knows her? Wow. Yeah. Maybe she's
1: on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, probably everyone's on Facebook these days. You've got another story as well that we'd like to delve into if that's Okay.
2: Very happy to do so.
0: And that is a story of a spring-heeled jack.
2: Oh, yes, dear old spring-heeled jack. It's a a wonderful tale. The first sighting of spring-heeled jack, allegedly, in 1837. And that was, well, he turned up all sorts of places, but that was mainly suburban London where he appeared. And the early 19th century, of course, there were reports of ghosts stalking the streets of, of London. And the first alleged sightings of Spring Hill Jack were in 1837. And the last reported sighting of him, as far as has been recorded, was 1904. So he was around for quite a long time. And he was certainly a fully grown adult by 1837. Yeah. And uh, if he was still kicking around in 1904, he must have been well into his 80s. The, the story begins with a, a young lady by the name of Mary Stevens who was walking in uh, to Lavender Hill and she worked in Lavender Hill as a servant and her parents were in Battersea. She'd been to see, been home to see her parents and as she was walking home towards Lavender Hill past Clapham Common, the description is that a strange figure leapt at her from a dark alley He grabbed her by both arms and began to kiss her. And then he started to rip her clothing away. And her description was when his claws touched her, according uh, to Mary, they felt cold and clammy as if he was an animated corpse. I think we can give some credit to the local residents because poor little Mary began screaming her head off us. I think most people would have that thing grabbed them. Yeah. And out of the, the, the local residents, they immediately came to a rescue. And you think, that is how society should react. You hear someone scream for help, and uh, you do, get in and do something. Yeah. I, I'm going to digress there just for one second, because it reminds me of an episode where we were shopping uh, here, And just uh, going down Churchill way back to the car park and heard someone screaming. And as we got closer, there was a great brute of a bloke about the size of Schwarzenegger with a poor little teenage girl. She didn't look more than 13 or 14 by one wrist, shaking her. And from the distance we were away, heard him shout, When I get you a client, you do as you're told. And Patricia mentioned, he's pimping the kid. And then when she normally restrains me from getting into a fight, she said, get him. And it was rather like those lovely old films they used to make of the Eastern extravaganzas, where the princess has a tiger on a chain and releases him when she wants <laughs> something. So, so my princess released her tiger. I, I was feeling, because we got two lovely daughters, and I, looked at this object, I thought, what are you doing to that kid? And uh, I looked again at these, as you and I do as martial artists, you know, you you look at the size of the bloke and you think, am I going to wrestle him or am I going to hit him? And he was was a good 18 or 19 stone against my 15. I thought, no, I'm not going to grapple him, I'm going to hit him. (laughs) And I had actually got within striking distance, brought my hand back. I was intending to chop him right across the throat and drop him. And two policemen came round the corner. Whoa. Fortunately, one of them knew me. And he gave me a great big grin. You can see what was happening. They must have heard the girl screaming. And he gave me a great big grin and said, all right, Lionel, we'll take him. <laughs> and uh, they, they grabbed an arm each and marched him up, and the girl ran for her life. But I was uh, just, uh, you know, thinking of that, in the way that you hear a girl screaming, you go to the rescue. Yeah. And this was what happened with Mary. And as the local residents rushed out to help her, Springheeled Jack, as he was later known, escaped. And he made a very strange, high-pitched, ringing laugh and jumped a nine-foot wall. Wow. Now, from a standing start... I think most of us could probably jump three foot, maybe four.
0: Yeah, if that, these days.
2: Yeah, to jump from a standing start and clear a nine-foot wall, that is odd, very odd. Yeah, just a little. A few months after these first sightings, we're now on to 1838, and Sir John Cowan was then the Lord Mayor of London, and he then became interested in it, and he had received a letter Signed only as a resident of Peckham. And he uh, then read this letter out to the assembly in the, the mansion house. And the, the letter said that the bell had been rung um, in the house where Jack next made his appearance. A servant came to open the door and he grabbed the poor girl and he then started to run away with her when, once again, screams. Uh, brought rescuers to help her. There was also the Allsop report, and it Jane Allsop, on the night of the 19th of February, nineteen thirty eight, answered the door of her father's house to a man who said he was a police officer. He told her to bring a light, and he told her, we've just caught spring Jack in the lane. So, very excited, she brings a, a candle, and noticed that he didn't look quite like uh, a local police officer. And she described him afterwards as having eyes that resembled red balls of fire. And she screamed for help when he grabbed her. And uh, fortunately, her sister came to her assistance and pulled her away from him. Uh, the thing, whatever it was, ran away. And the uh, there was also an occasion with uh, Aldershot, where it wasn't an attack on a girl, but this was August 77, and Springheel Jack appeared in the Aldershot barracks, and a sentry who was on duty peered into the darkness, and he issued a challenge that went unheeded. The figure came up beside him and hit him across the face. The guard shot at him, and he said there was no apparent effect, and Later, theorists suggested that he had only fired blanks, but the figure then disappeared into the darkness, and here's the important bit, with astonishing bounds. So there we are. In other occasions, he turned up in Lincolnshire, he turned up in Liverpool, and... No one has ever caught and identified Spring Eel Jack. You know, it makes you wonder if he's still around now. Where is he going to attack next?
0: Yeah, exactly. Do you think that maybe there were copycats involved? Because, as you said, he would have had to have been well into his eighties, yeah. And you wouldn't expect someone to be as sort of spry
2: as, as as he was at twenty. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, yes, I think that there were impersonators. It, it's such a—you um, you could imagine a couple of a couple of young students having had a having had a few pints and one of them saying, here, let's frighten the locals. I'll come running in and shouting, look out here, Spring-Heeled Jack, and you bounce down the road after me and then jump that wall. Um, it's the sort of thing that would have, I think, appealed to young men who were out for a laugh.
0: Because he even became sort of folklore, didn't he? Wasn't there a comic? Wasn't there a Spring-Heeled Jack comic that came out? I
2: believe there was, yes. A serial published in Charlie Fox's paper, The Boys Standard, uh, which was called Spring Jack, The Terror of London. And uh, another one appeared in the Beatles' New York Game Library in 1885. That was written by um, Thomas Monstrey, Colonel Monstrey. And that was just called Spring Jack, The Masked Mystery of the Tower. <laughs> and uh, Spring Heel Jack, The Terror of London, appeared again in the Boys' Monster Weekly. And there was a, a play about him written by Pete Turson uh, that was first performed in 1970 and was published in the um, periodical Plays and Players. And then way back, the, um, the Spring Heel Saga was um, broadcast between 2011 and 2016. And he became, in later publications, a sort of, vigilante superhero instead of being a bad guy and uh, that that appeared in the Hornet and the Hotspur
0: Coming off of that a little bit I've got a question to ask you yes. As a priest, we mentioned in the bio there at the start that yes. you're originally I think you were an Anglican priest, is that correct?
2: Yes, I was ordained as an Anglican priest um, uh, about 30 odd years ago.
0: Did you ever come across any mysteries that kind of I don't want to say challenged your faith, but made you think maybe there's, there's something that isn't explained or, or something that's...
2: Oh, yes. Yes, I would, I would certainly say that. I would think uh, there is no 11th commandment which says thou shalt not think. And uh, I would say that, uh, especially as a science fiction writer, when you do your best to ponder the mysteries of the universe, and to try and incorporate them in your stories, as I have done um, in *The Black Lion* and *The Golden Tiger*, and *Zuleta of the Priest*, which are really sociological, psychological adventures. And what I've found uh, as a priest that you need to be totally open-minded about the universe and its mysteries. I think any religion which shuts your mind down and says you mustn't consider that or you mustn't consider this, um, is harmful. I believe that the greatest of the gifts that God gave us was our curiosity and the ability to think and to wonder. And when you think of the, in my mind, unsolved problem, which is um, classified in philosophy as the Odyssey, which is the unsolved problem of a God whom we believe to be a loving father of the universe and the unbelievable suffering that's everywhere that we look. How do we reconcile a loving God who is all powerful with the terrible suffering that occurs? Yeah. Now, there are various very wise theologians who have attempted to solve the problem. But I don't think any of the solutions as yet put forward satisfactorily solve it. I believe in God. I believe in human survival. And that I believe the the world to which we go when our life ends here is a place of great joy and light and happiness. But there are times when you pick up a news news item and you think, how could a loving God permit that to happen? So I said, although I am a committed priest, I believe in God, I believe in the Christian faith, but there are huge question marks and I don't find that incompatible you know, when we, when we bring up our children and we do our best for them, there are occasions when they will ask each other, or in their own minds, why have mum and dad done that? Why can't we go there? Or why have they stopped us doing this? Yeah. Or in, in the simplest of examples, youngster hurts himself, and in the course of binding up the wound that uh, when they fell up, and down, you, no matter how gentle and tender you are, you hurt them, and you don't mean to, you don't want to. You just want to make sure that they don't get any infection. Or, you know, you you perhaps put some disinfectant on the cut, and it hurts. And so the boy or girl concerned wonders why the loving parent is causing him that pain as they put the sticking plaster over the wound. Yeah. And this is the kind of question that I think... We need to ask, as philosophers and theologians, that this is the kind of question that we need to ask in order to understand. As I said, my my favourite quote on those lines is the one I just used: that there is no eleventh commandment that says, "Thou shalt not think." God gave us our minds and wants us to use them.
0: Yeah, it's part of the free will, isn't it? It's part of our free will that we've it been is
2: given. part of our free will. Yes, because if as we believe love is the greatest good in the entire universe. That to have someone who is more to you than your own life and to love him or her, you can't do that without freedom. Love can only come. Love is the greatest good. Love can only come where freedom exists. You can't buy it. You can't enforce it. And I think that in order for love to be able to exist in the universe, it's essential for there to be freedom. And that is about the best answer I can give to my own questions when I come up against the problem of, of God and human suffering. We think of the dreadful disaster at Grenfell, and you think, well, how could an all-powerful God allow that to happen? But somebody was free to make decisions about the structure of that tower yeah and uh,
1: do you think that sometimes god you know why do you think sometimes he he would intervene and then there are the instances like that where he, he just yes, lets it happen yes.
2: now that 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 whole question of, of intervention there do seem to be occasions on which there is it may not come from god It may be that we do not yet understand the full and amazing power of the human mind and that there can be occasions on which something that appears paranormal or the power of thought and mental energy can actually have an impact on the external physical world. That somebody with... um, shall we say, an enormous strength of mind can actually will and want and wish something and can perform a feat of physical strength which is not normally possible unless you have directed the power of the mind toward you, you, you come, as you must have done on your interest in mysteries, you must have come across occasions where things are achieved physically, which seem almost impossible. I was listening to that magnificent Welsh cyclist who's just won the Tour de France, and he was making the point that going up the steep hill, if you're a cyclist of his quality, it isn't just your legs that are doing the action, there's something in your head that is doing it as well. He didn't phrase it quite like that, but that that was the gist of it. When you get a superb athlete, and he or she can do what appears to be Far beyond human strength, I wonder how much of that is in that athlete's mind, and, as you say, mind can overcome matter.
0: just you, a thought no, no, that's very good thought, very good thought. before we finish, I know your time is very precious, right before we finish, I'd like to just mention that we got the books from you recently your trilogy yes. that you've written with your lovely wife. Yep. And I, I've got to make apology to you because we received them in good time. Thank you very much. Right. I actually work away quite a bit. And uh-huh. Bella's son, Bryce, stole right. the first one of the books and has not let me have it back yet.
2: <laughs> well, I would take that as a great compliment. <laughs> He's enjoying what I've written. And, and when someone enjoys what you've written, you feel you've done something right. Um, what they are, a psychological and sociological, although the the story is one of action and uh, a great deal of action, and that it's a science fantasy, it's set on another world called Dural Walthor. And the three characters, what I've tried to do with it, is to take aspects of human personality, which all of us possess to a greater or lesser degree. And the Black Lion, who is the hero of the first book, is actually that aspect of the human personality, which is ambitious. that a sort of Alexander the Great type, I'm going to win. Then the Golden Tiger is the hedonist. He's the pleasure lover, likes his wine and his food and all the other joys of life. And the third one, Zotala the Priest, is the spiritual side of us, the altruistic side of us, the side of us that cares about others and does our best to help. And I've made them into three separate characters instead of there being just three aspects of one person and each of them has his or her own particular adventure.
0: Well, I think that anything that can tear a 15-year-old boy away from his computer and keep him captivated, you're obviously doing a fantastic job, and I, for one, can't wait to have a read of it myself.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Ellie. And uh, do do tell Bryce that uh, I am honoured and delighted that he's enjoying it. It's what every (laughs) author hopes his readers will do.
0: No, he really, really is. Listen, I want to thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate you sharing your time with us and sharing some of your fantastic mysteries that you've investigated with Patricia.
2: It's been a very real pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's so nice to be involved in your programme. And I wish you every success for many years to come. And the more of us who, like you and Bella, are interested in the mysterious and the unusual, the sooner humanity will come to solving the next mystery in the queue.
0: Well, I'm hoping that one day there will be a new word and that will be fanthorpion.
2: (laughs) My word, that would be an enormous (laughs) honour. I'll try and write a few more books before that (laughs) happens.
0: Lovely. Listen, thank you very much again and please do give our love to Patricia.
2: I will do. And thank you for inviting us to be on the show. And God bless you all. And to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Oh, it was amazing talking with that guy, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. I'll tell you one thing though. You know the story was saying where the guy went down and then to the toilet and then came back up and it was all futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, well I'm not surprised because when you go to the bathroom you take ages in there.
2: Yeah, I've got
0: there's lots of things to do in the bathroom. I got myself all clean and smelling good and looking good, and I'm
1: talking about when you got to go to the bathroom, not make yourself smell good. Well, I guess you would have That's to when try I catch to catch up yourself. on my Twitter. Nice. Okay, so you've just told our wonderful listening audience that you read their stuff while you're taking a poop.
0: Yeah, yeah, nice. but but you tell me one person who's on Twitter and Instagram that doesn't use that time to do that. Me. Thank you. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Just to let you know as well, for not only you, Bella, although you don't need to because you've already got them, but all of our listeners, if you do want to get hold of one of Lionel and Patricia Fanthorpe's books...
1: Or all of them.
0: Or all of them, you can go, first of all, to eBay. If you can find the trilogy new on eBay then the chances are it's actually them that's selling them. That's where we got ours, wasn't it? We bought it, and it came from them. And they were even kind enough to sign them for us. So if you speak really, really nicely to them and you get them from eBay, then they may even sign them for you. That's the first place. Also, most of their titles, or certainly many of them, are available on Kindle and available via Amazon. So if you want to get any of their books, I'm actually reading his numerology book at the minute, which I got on Kindle. So that's a really interesting book. If you're interested in numerology and all that sort of stuff, that's a really good one to look out for. Also, he has told me that I can share with you his email address. So if you do want to get in touch with him and get a book direct from him, not via eBay or whatever, you can contact him direct and he will sell them to you direct from his very own hands or from his and Patricia's hands, should I say.
1: Yeah, don't leave out the wonderful woman.
0: I know, standing behind every man, as we said. So you can get...
1: Well, you could finish it. Jeez. Finish what? Standing behind every man.
0: Yeah, that's it. Standing behind every man. Okay. Is a a lovely woman. (laughs) So you can get hold of them at Fanthorpe, which is F-A-N-T-H-O-R-P-E at AOL.com. Yes, they do still have AOL email addresses.
1: Wow. Actually, come to think of it, I think I've got a few.
0: <laughs> yeah, guys, if you don't know this about Bella, she has an email address with every single email provider. When you when you try and create a new email address and it says, I'm sorry, that one's already taken, it's because Bella's got it. <laughs> so we have got some other interesting things coming up. We have another interview coming up in a couple of weeks' time with Ruth Roper-Wild, who's an author of a couple of ghost books. And she's also in the process of researching another book as well. So that's going to be coming up soon. You need to listen out for that because that will be in a couple of weeks. We've also got a podcast coming up, which is our next podcast, which is going to be some of your stories. So we're actually making some phone calls throughout this week to speak to some of our listeners who have got some stories they want to share with you. So tune in to the next episode as well where you'll hear that.
1: Okay. Is that it?
0: If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found at WeirdWackyWonderful at Outlook.com. We can be found on Twitter at the WWW Podcast. And on Instagram, we are Weird Wacky Wonderful Podcast.
1: But we're always weird, wacky, wonderful people.
0: Well, you're always weird and wacky. Yeah, that leaves me as wonderful. Cheers guys. I'm gonna run now.
1: Yeah, yeah, you better. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See you guys,
0: <laughs> take it easy.